Welcome to episode six of A Pint with Shawnee B. We've managed to get to this point in the podcast life existence, which is a major achievement. All thanks to you. Thank you very much to all of you who've sent me likes and messages of support and encouragement. Uh, we're going to keep with it until everyone loses interest. And I would ask that regular listeners, if you could continue to like the podcast wherever you see it, it's available in SoundCloud, Stitcher and iTunes. If you can review it in iTunes, it'll be great. If you can pass it on to your friends, tweet about it. These things are slow builds, and I'm hoping that over time it starts getting uh, larger and larger listeners. But we shall see. Anyway, today's episode comes to you from New York. We've also got some other news, which is that we have a sponsor in New York for all episodes of A Pint with Shawnee B recorded in the city. Um, the sponsor is Hands Tooth Gastro Pub, which is great food and is on 37th and 8th Avenue. And its sister pub across the road called Stitch, which is a bit more nighty and sort of um, music-y. Um, they're both run by my friend Nick Cohen. Nick has said that any of you who go into the bar, find him, mention my name, will get a free pint, even if I'm not there to enjoy it with you. Today's guest is very special to me, a mentor of mine, the guy who took me out of Ireland in 1996 all the way over to Singapore, where he was in charge of probably the best agency I've ever had the pleasure of working for and uh, one of the best in the world at the time, Beatty Ads. His name is Robert Gibraltar. He currently is a senior director at one of those old stalwart bastion agencies of New York called DeVito Verdi. Uh, and I caught up with Robert uh, to share his great wisdom, humility, kindness, and he's just truly one of the great guys uh, of the ad business and a wonderful person. So, without further ado, I give you Robert Gibraltar. Good afternoon, Robert. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Shawnee B. It's an honor to share some moments with you. Thank you. I guess the time we were together was fun in uh, Singapore. You were the chief executive officer of Beatty which at the time was probably the best agency in Singapore and one of the best in Asia. <laughs> you were one of the great bosses, I think, because of the way you knew everyone's name and you had an arm around a shoulder because we had a rather volatile boss in Ian Beatty. I hope you're listening, Ian. Um, and how did you get out there? And when, when, what was it like when you left America to go out to Asia? What was that like? I got to Asia through Europe. Uh, I had been uh, senior vice president, regional account director, managing at the time the launch of M&Ms in Europe. And uh, my job was to go over there and help Mars take the sweets they had on their shelves for, I don't know, decades called Treats and Minstrels. Yeah, I remember that. And take them off the shelves yeah. and replace at least that volume and more with these color-coded candies called M&Ms. The Germans didn't want greens in their pack and the Dutch wanted to emphasize milk and the English didn't care what anyone else thought and, <laughs> and Mars wanted one campaign in Europe and we had clients and agencies in every market giving their own opinion wow. as to what had to be done wow. so it was a good lesson for me in uh, resourcefulness and diplomacy because so this was DMBMB, was it? And this was Bates. Bates, okay, okay. But and did you, was it successful? Oh, it was usually successful because it was very important for Mars at the time to build a global brand around M&M's because they were investing over $40 million in the Olympic rings. Right. 
And Still are. then they wanted to leverage that investment in promotions and advertising worldwide. Yeah. So, but uh, that takes me to, uh, I was uh, projected out to Asia. Yeah. And so I went to Bateson, Singapore, where we were losing a million dollars. We had 36 clients. But there was a phenomenal creative director there at the time, Paul Quinlan, and he just put together a phenomenal creative product on everything we pay, we, we worked on. We went from 28th to 8th in the marketplace. Right. I think it was Media Magazine's Asian Agency of the Year. Well done. It was very heady, and yeah. this was done in two years. On the back of the success of the Singapore office, Oddly enough, my compensation was tied to success, and we were very successful, so they were looking and going, hmm, this guy's pretty expensive. Maybe we should leverage him in a bigger market. So uh, I, 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 I was offered to run the Malaysian office, which was much bigger. <laughs> yeah. And I went, oh, th but this is my baby. I'm really attached to Singapore. If I can continue to run Singapore and Malaysia together, which a lot of other people yeah. had done, I really happy to expand my horizons and grow but I'm very loyal to my, my Seeing the staff here yeah. and what we've accomplished in a short amount of time and it's but at the time there was a transition in regional director from Alex Hamill to uh, Chris Jakes right, right and Chris said okay that's fine Robert you can and then behind my back he hired my replacement in Singapore nice. and I went Bye. <laughs> uh, my my contract says you'll take me back to New York and pay me for six months. Yeah. And so I was about to go back to New York yeah. when Jim Aitchison told Ian Beatty, "Let's get this guy to run the Singapore office." Yeah. So it was. This was about '94. This was '94. Right. For those who don't know, Beatty as was at the time probably one of the biggest uh, agencies in Asia. Ian was like a kind of a. Ogle, David Ogilvy-esque kind of character who uh, set up the business in the early 70s on the back of Singapore Airlines and created the Singapore Girl and created that brand and made a it genius. what it is today. And a, yeah, an genius. absolute genius to work with. and Very abrasive character, you know, difficult and uh, rude sometimes. But was, you know, it was also his control freak. Yeah. And in that aspect of it was important to him that he had people who, like sheep, would... Uh, uh, other than me, of course. That yeah. uh, <laughs> he would. Uh, he surrounded himself with yes men. Yeah. But I, they, again, it was a pretty. We tripled billings in '94 to '97. We yeah. doubled our profits in the Singapore headquarters. Singapore was honoring its most enterprising companies. We were yeah. the only head agency in that yeah. list. Uh, we won more awards than anyone in Asia by far. Yeah. We were thirty percent bigger than Ogilvy yeah. in the market. 175 people. Yeah. We had a media agency. Yeah. We had a promotion agency. We built Public a relations. design yeah. agency. And we had a pool table. When I was living in Denver, Ian has a, a house up in Boulder and he kindly brought me to his house for a barbecue and catch up. And, you know, he's still all there, but he, you know, I did learn more in two years with you and Ian and all those guys that oh, I did in brilliant. eight years working in Dublin before, you know, yeah. was, I haven't felt since that kind of vibrancy that you were in an ad agency that mm -hmm. mattered, you know, that wasn't just constantly over looking over its shoulder about what the client wants and, you know, wasn't afraid and wasn't run by accountants and was one that was very pure in its mission it to the point of reshooting commercials if they were wrong or... 
leaning in hard and saying it's not good enough do it again you know and that's that goes all the way back to Charlie Sachi throwing ads at his brother mm-hmm. when he came home selling crap you know yeah. and it's gone it's it absolutely gone passion at the time and it came from a really the creative talent so it's amazing they, so the, one of the things I felt as well about you there was um, and you know you, you, you're, you're, you're a, a soft what is it hard word softly spoken kind of guy and uh you know, there there was always that tension between Ian and certain people like myself, where you wouldn't see eye to eye, and he'd be very domineering, and you were always there, kind of picking up the pieces and packing people on the back and saying, you know, go for a beer, don't worry about it. He's just like that; he can be rude. And of course, Ian's not a stupid man. He knew he was hiring you for that reason, but it was very clear how well you managed quite a lot of egos. Well, I think that's what the, the, the challenge and joy that I discovered over the years was the human resource challenge of uh, working with very bright, creative people. And the more creative, the more challenging it was. I came to realize that the whole challenge of managing and working and nurturing creative talent is like coaching a team. Mm. Uh, or or inspiring an orchestra. On any given day, the unexpected will happen. The string will break, or the ankle will break, yeah. and but you still got to go out there and win the game. And then, creative people can be as competitive as Olympic athletes, yeah, yeah. and as as determined to win as Roger Federer, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and as focused uh, on what they do, and yeah. that that. that energy should be given dignity and taken yeah. seriously it was good to leverage so that. when it so you know we can't we can't leave Beatty without that I think I'll say it if you're not going to but I thought it was really terrible the way uh, it ended for you <laughs> there and uh, like actually when you talk about dignity and respect I thought that was just sadly lacking in what happened because it was around Christmas probably 95 I think wasn't it no it was 97, 97. and uh, sorry 97 and, and uh, I had gone to the the home it's very um it's very humbling when you're invited to the home of someone in asia and i was invited to the home of sang who, who was the original founder of Beatty. he was a production guy and ran the production department great guy. and he had just come out of the hospital and uh, had a bypass surgery so i went to visit him at his home uh and paid my respects and i uh, wish him the best health and then I rushed back to the agency for a meeting only to find uh, Rick Scott Blackhall in my office he was the number two <laughs> baby and he With said a furrowed look on his face and he said uh, look I'm afraid it's over your job is over um, I don't know exactly what words he said I was kind of like stunned because I thought we had been riding pretty high and then I, I learned that Ian had hired someone from Saatchi in China and uh, we'll let history speak for itself you know my jaundiced view of the business kind of started there I think I could probably pinpoint it back to that time because I'm, I'm a great hater of how little respect is given to employees in advertising and how little loyalty is valued and how the big names here get on my back about going oh, you don't understand business you know, it's business blah 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 but you know, one of the things about the ad business is you have to have, and I think we had at that time, you had so many great people working uh, for you in harmony. 
mm-hmm. and you know you end up having to protect keep massage egos make sure they're paid properly or else they leave and right now and for the last five to ten years the people who are leaving the ad business in my view are the people who can leave the ad business and the people who are not leaving the ad business are the people who are unable to leave the ad business and what you're ending up with is a, sign- with is a stagnating ad business and a lot of other things happening elsewhere well, we talked about the benefits of Ian and his genius and what he built and all of those positives, and there's the countervailing negative. You look at the great agencies, the amazing leaders, and they tend to be dictators, yeah. and they tend to be control freaks, and they tend to deliver the great product because they're so hard to work with or yeah. they're so demanding. Yeah. You go off and say, well, can't the world be more a meritocracy, a pluralistic society where people are honored with what work they contribute? And I don't know, I think Ian would rather, and this was said often, that the company f- fail with him than succeed without him. Yeah. So, so it kind of did. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to Uh, um, you know his and I think that that's not just true of just advertising I think it's very very hard to build something sustain it and to uh, be appreciated for it because I think people who come after assume so much like this is the starting point when I came and look at what I did and they have no concept of how hard it is to start, how yeah. hard it is to get momentum, how hard it is to build a reputation like that. You know, and you're just coming in and going, well, he doesn't understand the right answer to this. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, I mean, you know, and not as I say in Australia, not pissing in your pocket, which apparently is a good thing. Um, <laughs> I, I would actually chart the decline of baby ads to, to that moment, because I know for a fact that a lot of people who were there at the time with you, when it happened, we were stunned, shocked, disgusted pissed off a lot of people left within the next six months I, I thought it was remember. because of how I played soccer well no you're not you're crap at <laughs> soccer we get, you're very good at you're very good at squash but not so good at soccer we're very po- very passionate we had a good soccer we did, team we did have a good soccer team um, from then on I mean I was probably there for another six maybe eight months I'm not sure it just you know it's like that one player who leaves a club and the club just you know loses its shit no, I, you know, I mean and, I'm um, I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel bad. I mean, I would have loved to have continued to ride. Uh, when I left, I, I did nothing but thank Ian for the opportunity because it was quite an honor that he gave me the opportunity to run Singapore's crowning agency. I mean, I don't know that there ever was an agency as good or ever will be. Yeah, and you'll never get, it, like you'll never get a direct thing from Ian, really, as you know. But, I mean, when I was up visiting him, Last year, I think he conceded that it might have been a, not such a great move getting rid of you if that's all too little too late. But anyway, you got back to America and yeah. you were suddenly a client. Well, no, it was, you know, the move abroad is so different. Your sensory perceptions, everything is open and everything's so delicious and wow, the world is so big and it's all challenging and oh, where am I going to find diapers and all of this kind of stuff. But the move home is the most shocking of them all. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to anyone who's worked abroad and has repatriated and looks around and goes, 
where's the parade? Uh, don't you know what I've been doing lately? Uh, and you basically find out that family and friends go, well, we accommodated you those days you came back when you were abroad. But, you know, like, we've had a life, too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, la-di-da, you've had a good one, but now you live here. <laughs> and I think that that's true in careers as well, that, you know, European and Asian companies that send people abroad to work tend to integrate those experiences far better into much more of a global mindset. Whereas if you go abroad for a U.S. company and come back, you find somebody else has been pissing on your fire hydrant yeah. or uh, you know you're, you're, there's no real seat for you at the table and you have to take steps back and reestablish networks and because the prime market is the US yeah. not the world I have to say the opposite is the effect in places like Australia and Ireland I mean my, my countries mm-hmm. where, where, you, where you go away and, you're, and you succeed away they welcome you back with more salary and open arms well, and experience and all that. But yeah, there's a certain cliqueiness and a certain arrogance to New York that I don't think it deserves in advertising anymore. Maybe one day it did, one yeah. time it did in the 50s and 60s. Well, even in New York it's worse because this is very much of what have you done lately business and yeah. what have you done in New York. And uh, you could win awards in, in the Midwest and people go, oh, really? I actually came back without anything specific, and uh, after a period of time, uh, I had to get a job. My son was uh, now 12, 13. Private schools in New York were very expensive, and so I took a job at Gray Advertising and Account Management on cigarette business. It was back in the saddle of advertising, but I did ask my son, I said, do you mind if I work on cigarettes? I said, it'll help you go to, to private school. It was it was really what was available to me because uh, the industry wasn't growing like it was when I went abroad. The talent in account management was changing because planning was splitting off from account management. Yes. So I took a job at Gray. And yeah, it was almost like client service was driven into... It was setting up meetings, carrying yeah. a bag, yeah. Uh, yeah. and making saying sure... Yes. And saying yes. But it didn't last very long because... From the time I got my job till my next big opportunity that came along, it was about six months of interviewing to get a big job, interesting job at Avon Products. Uh, Initially, they hired me and they said, would you please take care of global advertising for us? We we really need to get our act together internationally. So, but the week before I was, I actually started, the outgoing president hired a domestic agency called NW Air to coordinate with an international agency, Darcy McManus and Macias and yeah. Benton and Bowles, to be my agency. Right. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's give it a go. I mean, yeah. uh, let's let's give it a go. Let me meet with the people. And so we started having these global meetings where 40 people would come to New York to go ahead and give us the big idea. Yeah. And we got absolutely nothing done. It was nothing but like the United Nations trying to solve the Middle East. It was back to it was, M&M's in Europe. It was, it was so, it was so <laughs> horrible. It was so horrible. And meanwhile, the meter was running at a million dollars a month in wow. fees. Really? So I'd love to know what know, number that is. Like, it won't be that. And so uh, after 10 months and 10 million dollars uh, in a huge horrible meeting, 
uh, I had prepared and I had went went to some friends and got a freelance team to put together a presentation and just took it into uh, Andrew Jung at the time, chairwoman of Avon, and just said, hey, we, we, I can't, I have to show you this. We presented it and said, where has this been? I said, will you please let us do this? I, I put together a blend of people who had worked there yeah. in, in marketing as well as a few people from around the world and we, we became 11 people <laughs> in New York right. coordinating with internally internally I ended up becoming an inside agent Little, yeah building get rid of the building a buck a month yeah, that was over right. that, that breaking up is hard to do I think I ruffled a few feathers there yeah. but on the back of that and on the back of a very very successful global launch uh, my responsibilities increased to be in charge of the creative agency. And then I got very involved in the jungle, and the jungle was managing over 700 million brochures a year worldwide, wow. and the wow. efficiencies and the creative product. And uh, when I started, there were probably about 30 freelancers, and yeah. I go, why are there all these freelancers? <sighs> because the systems were so broken that the people who were working there would would basically leave at five and say, hey, give it to a freelancer. <laughs> and and the, the, the interesting thing about being on the client side is you realize that it's a lot more conservative in terms of managing people. At an agency, you just kind of like hire and fire at will. Yeah. On the client side, people sue you. Was there more politics in the client side than there was in the um, agency side? or? It's politics everywhere, everywhere you yeah, have people. Every time that. you have, uh, you ask a question like, "What do you think of this?" To, to someone, you get you get politics. And then you you moved into the online world when the, when the online boom happened. Tell us about that. Well, it was an interesting opportunity. My uh, my son w went to Harvard. I'm very proud to say. And he was the first Facebook baby at Harvard. Uh, a year ahead of him was Mark Zuckerberg. Oh. So my son got on Facebook. I got on Facebook with him. Oh, how creepy, Dad. He graduated in 07, and he and a, a very, very impressive roommate, Mark Lithuanian, decided that polling has been locked in the industrial era of create a survey, distribute the survey, interpret the survey. And you could do it by in a mall, you could do it by phone, you could do it by on the internet. And you, but nevertheless, that basic methodology of construct a survey, implement, interpret, is a godlike one-way street. And they were dedicated to uh, in, in creating uh, multiple perspectives in terms of who's, who knows what the right question is and who knows what question is more important. And, well, I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. I thought this is the most exciting thing I've ever been involved in. And so I went to work for them. Uh, I opened my Rolodex and, and got them, made them bacon and eggs in the morning or turkey bacon for one of the people who worked there. <laughs> hey, we didn't eat pork. And we, we worked out of our um, dining room in our apartment as opposed to a garage. And they launched uh, Urtak, U-R-T-A-K. And it grew to, wow, uh, 40 million opinions to tens of thousands of polls, created around the world, 
and it became one of the first tranches at uh, Techstars in New York when Techstars was started. The Ertak was a Techstar baby. We raised funds, but couldn't get any traction with the investors in terms of the orientation, which was towards publishing yeah. as opposed to research. There's no accountability for failure in polling. There mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. is, and I remember when I was, uh, we were looking to build business in Asia, and someone came up to me and said, look, you can get a lot of stories by just making predictions as a managing mm -hmm. director. Predict something for next year. And if it doesn't happen, no one will ever care. Yeah. No one will ever yeah. know. Yeah. And, and I think that it's true of polling. So there, the methodology was quite simple. It was all yes, no, don't care. And so any two questions then could be cross-tabulated if you care about this. You know, I mean, it was just an amazing methodology. What do you, you know, looking back, what do you feel are the pearls of wisdom? What are the things that you would say, my learnings in my career that you would pass on to the next generation or to the younger Robert? What would you say to yourself or well, someone like you? Here's something I can offer by virtue of my age. When you go into a profession, you tend to be quite myopic. You go, I, me, 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 I, like a teenager, and you want to compete, you want to get ahead, and maybe you don't look around enough and ask a few questions like, what happens when you're 35? <laughs> you know, if I had, hadn't been so focused and driven and, and uh, eager to grow in in my career, I might have taken a little bit more time to interview people who are older than me in their jobs and say, well, what do you do when you're not here? So I, I would pass that on, which is at some point in your career, you're going to go through transition. You can call it retirement, or you could call it a second career, or you could call it anything. But you should be prepared for it, at least emotionally. You could start preparing it by pick something you love to do, paint, uh, fish, uh, start a little business on the side. Andy, yeah. uh, in, in your uh, yeah. interview with him, yeah. uh, became a painter and uh, was able to help uh, provide food for his family. Yeah. By, and <laughs> so tax I bill didn't pay the tax authorities. <laughs> um, I think that's a big one I reflect on now. Mm. Um, what other things can I say? I don't know. I think it, when you, uh, internationally, you might share this as well, that if you aspire to work abroad, I think you have to be incredibly flexible. Because when you want to move, you can't move. And when they want to move you, you have to be ready to move. It's much harder uh, to manage an international career but yet it has its um, amazing benefits. Um, Robert, you've always been an inspiration to me anyway, and you continue to be, and it's always great coming to New York to see you and catching up, and we, we tell old war stories together. Um, thank you very much for being on the podcast and for sharing all of your career knowledge with us. And we'll well, see you next time. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be uh, on your podcast. I appreciate the opportunity that I'd like to learn about myself again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs>